Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Dialogue. Dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue. Dialogue journal. Dialogue. Dialogue. It's the 50th anniversary of Dialogue. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, a member of the Dialogue Board of Directors. Today we're pleased to have as our guest Corey Crawford, Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies at Ohio University. Dr. Crawford received his Ph.D. from Harvard in 2009, and in addition to his teaching job, is Associate Editor of Studies in the Bible and Antiquity, a publication of the Maxwell Institute. This podcast is an outgrowth of Corey's outstanding article titled The Struggle for Female Authority in Biblical and Mormon Traditions, which was published in the summer 2015 issue of Dialogue. If you enjoy this podcast, I hope you'll consider visiting us online at dialoguejournal.com and subscribing to the print or electronic version of Dialogue. Also, this year is Dialogue's 50th anniversary of publication, and you'll be hearing more of our plans for a super celebration of this milestone. In the meantime, if you appreciate hearing a measured, balanced, and independent voice on issues of importance to Mormons today, we hope you'll consider a donation to Dialogue. It's easy to do online. The next voice you hear will be my wife, Dawn, introducing Dr. Crawford at a gathering of the Miller-Eccles Study Group in Orange County, California. Our speaker tonight is uh, Dr. Corey Crawford, who is Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies at Ohio University. His topic is The Struggle for Female Authority in Biblical and Mormon Traditions, and is based on an article that he published in Dialogue. As I looked at that title, I thought about a program that some of the women in our stake are currently involved in. We're preparing for a, our Relief Society birthday party. And we've got a big program with music and speakers. And the topic for that is for such a time as this. And it will involve having actors come out and portray Eve and Mary and... Deborah and Esther, and then bringing it down more to our modern times, Emma Smith. I don't know much more than that. Who else will be involved as far as figures from the past? But the focus of the program is to focus on their contributions, how they made a difference in their time. And with the thought that we as sisters today, living today for this time, need to do similar things. We need to stand up for our values. We need to speak out. We need to be the light on the hill and exercise a certain authority. Of course, that authority is constrained somewhat, and there's a tension both in the church and and in society in general as to what women can do and want to do and what they're allowed to do. I think that our speaker tonight is going to be focusing on a lot of those same issues, how, how they've played out historically. Corey Crawford received his Ph.D. from Harvard, and prior to assuming his position at the University of Ohio, he taught ancient history in the history department at BYU. He spent a, a year in Germany a couple of years ago with a Volkswagen Mellon Foundation Fellowship. 
He is the associate editor of Studies in the Bible and Antiquity, a publication of the Maxwell Institute at BYU. He has a number, number of interesting projects going on, which I'm think, sure we'll be hearing more about at some point, relating to the Jer Jerusalem Temple and the Israelite Tabernacle. He serves as the Elders Quorum President in his Athens, Ohio ward, where he lives with his wife, Rebecca, and their three children. I'll turn the time over to Corey. Thank you. Wow, gosh. Um, <clears throat> thank you so much. Um, this is really uh, inspiring. Uh, I'm really uh, just blown away by the, the sort of energy and enthousi enthusiasm for the... Um, for knowledge, um, and and I really appreciate the the invite. Not just because it's been already a rough winter in Ohio, um, <laughs> and, and definitely Ohio is not southern southeastern Ohio is not the worst of it. It's um, it's also wonderful to to be back in my home state. I'm from California. Um, I'm from the north, though. Uh, Reading uh, is the town that I grew up in. And uh, I've said I don't know how many times already that I'm wondering why I ever left California <laughs> um, for for cold places. Yeah, but it's it, it's great to be here. Thank you very much for for coming, um, and I hope um, I hope to make a worthy contribution. Uh, and I can hardly endorse uh, Jared Hickman. If you don't know him, he's wonderful. We were uh, we were in grad school at the same time, and he's. He's uh, just one of the smartest, genial, warmest people um, that I know. Okay, so, um, so tonight uh, I want to talk a little bit more casually and informally than, than I did in my article, um, also shorter. Um, the article is, uh, is long, and I have to say at the beginning that it was long on purpose. It was long on purpose because, because of reasons we'll talk about, but I didn't, I, I wanted the evidence not to be easily sort of dismissible. But I, so I wanted to talk more casually and informally and uh, more briefly, uh, I guess, it, than I do in my article about my, my own behind the scenes kind of thought journey, because that's what it felt like to me, uh, I guess in, in retrospect, a, a journey. And because it doesn't exactly come through that way in the article, you know, academics don't write in interesting ways usually. <laughs> So, but mainly because it took me, it took me from being a skeptic to um, to a believer, uh, from an inveterate pessimist to a hopeful optimist when it comes to what the Bible has to offer on the question of women and the priesthood. So, uh, please excuse the navel gazing. Um, I, I tell my story here not to not to boast or to privilege my own experience, but because I think it's relevant to the issue, and especially because I don't want to seem like I'm a sophist sort of creating a case that happens to conform to what's um, in vogue currently. I must admit that, my, that, that, that that was my strong concern going in, that the Bible would be reduced to, in any treatment, that the Bible would be reduced to this kind of blunt object um, that is used to advance an agenda. You know, we, we want women to have the priesthood, and so let's go find all of the things that say women should have the priesthood, and rah-rah. But, but that always strikes me as really 
uh, doing damage to the evidence. Um, but we can we can we can talk about that. I mean, there's. I'll, I'll kind of conclude on a, on a point about that. So uh, so I didn't want to to base my discussion on just assembling a paltry number of verses uh, that are ripped out of their context and made to serve the ends of the user. I actually think that it's only through a greater attention to the context in the Bible that we can begin to make sense of the evidence, the biblical evidence concerning women. And so I was really surprised, actually, by by what I found. So um, I'll also admit that my reasons for beginning the project were not terribly noble in the sort of idealistic sense. Um, The question about women in the priesthood was literally brought home to me when I began to take a harder look at practices surrounding priesthood with regard to my son and my daughters. Um, how the daughters, my daughters were visibly affected emotionally and intellectually by what they were observing their brother do um, when he turned 12 and compare with their future selves and, you know, to start sort of asking questions that all of a sudden I'm not prepared for. I was always prepared for the sex talk, but not for, not for you know, did David really kill Goliath? And, you know, uh, what's the business about about getting the priesthood when you're 12 if you're a boy, but when you're a girl, grandparents don't come out, and grandparents, you know, and, and, and there's not a big sort of fanfare surrounding turning 12 if you're a girl. And so so I, I guess that started me, me thinking, especially because my training is in, is in Old Testament. And, and then what finally motivated me, sort of the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, to be perfectly honest, were two more intellectual frustrations. Um, first, I felt like it had become all too easy in the absence of recent LDS scholarship. It's, it's hard to write on this topic if you're an LDS biblical scholar at BYU, um, for obvious reasons. So, since BYU <laughs> wouldn't take me, no. Uh, since B- <laughs> Um, I'm happy to be at Ohio, but but my position at Ohio allowed me to speak with with uh, a little bit more uh, more freedom. And I, I love BYU. I graduated from BYU, I, but uh, but I'm also happy to teach in Ohio. In the absence of LDS scholarship, it had become too easy to casually refer to male dominated priesthood in the Bible as if it were completely transparent and self evident. Even if even if you disagreed with the premise, it seemed like. Nobody wanted to say, you know, anything besides, well, yeah, in the Bible, like, if you're from coming from a liberal perspective, well, the, the Bible is just kind of, uh, you know, it's misogynistic, it's androcentric, it's, it's it, it, you know, they hated women back then. If you're liberal, if you're conservative, just to say, well, you know, we know that all of the biblical evidence points toward God choosing men, and we don't know why. So that was frustrating to me, because... Every time people referred to that in, in my experience, anecdotal experience, no one ever actually got the Bible out and sort of read verses and said here and here and here, right? So I wanted to start to look into it. The Bible was written, indeed, was written by and for men, so even liberal LDS scholars might have assumed that a look at the Bible was a losing proposition if you wanted to empower women. Um, so when... When Michael Otterson, the, the church spokesman, issued a couple of statements that that sort of took this this sort of casual dismissal of, of biblical evidence, um, it really got my wheels uh, turning. Uh, 
And this is what he said in, in one of the statements. This is in a BBC interview. Holding offices such as bishop and apostle, there is no scriptural precedent for that. So we don't ordain women to those positions. Words over, over that statement. So the statement is, part, is patently not true, at least not put so simply. Right. He also stated in a press release that we do not know the reasons Jesus didn't ordain women, only that he did not. There's a major question. All my biblical scholars' friends were like, yeah, he didn't ordain men either. <laughs> so, <laughs> so why is this a relevant piece of, uh, of information? Um, and that is a complex question, too. I don't mean to be flippant, uh, flippant about this at all, but just that, honestly, my biblical scholars' friends, uh, LDS and non-LDS, were like, it's common knowledge that Jesus wasn't into ordaining priests, right? So why is it relevant that Jesus didn't ordain women? So, but anyway, I took, I took Brother Otterson's statement as a, as a call to inquiry, right? We don't know why, so let's try to find out. Let's try to at least think and talk about the issue. So at least uh, it was a call to, in, to continue the pursuit of answers. In setting out, I was inspired by Richard Bushman, who said in a setting kind of similar to this one, just after Rough Stone Rolling came out, he, there was a, in, in Boston, there was this sort of small study group that I had the great fortune of being invited to. Um, and he said, he tells his students to jump right into the middle of problems, right? Don't shy away from problems, don't dismiss them, and don't pretend like they're not there, and you know, jump right into the middle of the problem, raise it, look at it right in the face, describe it with no dishonesty if any understanding is going to be reached. You have to know the, the issue and, 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 and not, not, dis, not be dismissive of any part of it. So I thought the time had come for a new description of the biblical evidence, even if it, even if it was just to point out the problems anew. The most recent treatments had, were by that time about um, 20 years old, and had missed some critical points, even though they're solid works. And there's, I should point you to wonderful dialogue articles if you're not aware of them, um, especially by Melody Munch Charles um, uh, about the biblical evidence. Also, Anthony Hutchinson and Todd Compton um, have really solid work um, on this. The second frustration that really motivated me was with a trend that seemed to be emerging in recent decades as the movement to ordain women grew. And this trend is that in order to explain the reasoning behind an all-male priesthood, one must devalue holding and wielding the priesthood. This takes two main forms. Number one, emphasizing the passive reception of blessings as something available to everyone. So everybody enjoys the benefits of the priesthood, which is, is, is true, but I think maybe it also um, neglects something. And number two, to parse and reduce priesthood duties to mere administration. That is, uh, things that are implied not to matter as much as receiving, the, as receiving the blessings. Both of these trends, which I should note were brilliantly called out in a, in a famous article, uh, first on a blog and now included in the Mormon Feminism volume um, by my friend um, and, and fellow uh, grad student, Kinthea Taylor, is the chicken patriarchy, um, if you're familiar with it. Both of these trends are troubling to me because they drain the power out of what I understood as a boy and a young man to be a power that was to be used to call down the heavens in the way Christ or the prophets would, to act. 
If priesthood is about godhood and God is an agent of power, it seems to weaken the priesthood to say it's like sunlight that one basks in no matter who opens the curtains. It's the power to open the curtains if light is needed. It's the power to exercise agency, the power to act and not to be acted upon. The reason for this is um, this twofold trend, I think, is born out of a, a good impulse. It, it reflects the church's, and by the church I mean all of us, right, our discomfort with inequality, with saying that men have an advantage in being agents. So people are starting to say that being, agent, being an agent isn't all that important anyway, um, because we don't like to talk about that, that as, as an example of inequality. Some people like like Valerie Hudson Castler, um, who I think was a speaker here at one, yes. one point. Um, yeah, she's she's really famous, but she has one point of reasoning that is not good when it comes to the Bible, and that is that sh- th- this this discomfort with inequality, they feel it so strongly that they try to get the underlying Hebrew in some of these these texts to mean exactly the opposite of what it plainly means. Um, and I, de- I detail this. I'm not going to go into it right now. We, we could later if you want, but it, not, I detail it in the, uh, in the article. But saying that using priesthood isn't as important as receiving it strips the priesthood of its power in a way that I think will be difficult to recover if the trend continues. If there were no other reason to go on but this, it seems it would be more than sufficient um, to examine the topic, unless we abandoned ideas of equality as a good altogether to grant priesthood agency to all worthy people. So in light of these two problems, the the casual assumption um, that we know what the Bible says and the rhetorical stripping of priesthood power, I wanted to contribute my own voice in the capacity of someone with a PhD in biblical studies in hopes of contributing to a solution. One of the first emails I got from a friend who had read the article said, you know, really great article. I hope you're a very patient man because, you know, I'm not sure that this is going to make any dent. And, and my point to him was I don't, I, I don't have an agenda in changing the church. I don't think that I'm the, you know, the, any, any kind of um, hero when it comes to this topic. There, yeah. But like I said, I'm trying to contribute to a solution, right? To ideas need to be in, in the mix when it comes to these these questions. And so I, I wanted to throw some ideas out there. So I went about trying to do what Bushman advised, to raise the problem and to describe it as, uh, as carefully and responsibly as possible. And the first problem that you come to w- with this question when it comes to the Bible is the one that is sort of lurking behind the text, and that is the overwhelming dominance of the male voice, the male perspective, and male assumptions in the Bible and in all of Mormon canonical scripture, in all the standard works. The most famous institutions, the temple and its priests, and the monarchy assume that as a rule, men will hold these offices, even though there is no direct legislation against women holding office. By all of the, all of these sort of male-centered uh, legislations when it comes to how, how you ordain priests and stuff like that, it never says women can't be priests. It just presumes that priests are only going to be men. So leaving aside any hard questions of whether this makes the Bible you know, misogynistic, I had to ask with other LDS and non-LDS biblical scholars what this means even for how we read the text. What does it mean that for the vast majority of the Bible, God speaks mostly to men 
through male actors. Uh, and I, I'm not saying that women don't get value out of reading the text or anything. I'm saying that in the, in the logic of the text itself, it emerges that, like, like for example, in Leviticus, when it, says, when, it's, when, it's, when it says you, when it's talking to Israel, right, you, it clearly means male Israelites, freeborn male Israelites. And so that's what I mean. I don't mean that there's not relevance um, to, to women in the Bible. God speaks mostly to men through male actors, be they prophets, apostles, or anonymous narrators. So what does that, what does that mean for the way we read and for the way we approach this question? Of course, this isn't the place to make sense of the Bible's androcentrism, which is a fancy name for a dominant male perspective. It's not the place to make sense of it in, the, in, in, in a broad sense, but it's apparent that, that, the, that the church has never attempted systematically to deal with this fact, and whether this is something cultural, like the calcified policy on the racial priesthood ban, or, um, or whether it is the will of God. Right? If you can guess, my own feeling is that it's, it's the former. It's much more cultural, but, but um, this isn't... I'm uh, not really going to sort of delve into that big, um, big question. Um, it, it makes sense to most people to talk of a racial priesthood ban, but the gendered ban is so entrenched that it doesn't even feel like a ban to call it that. And, and even to call it that feels like a category error, I think, to most of my fellow um, churchgoers. But leaving aside the social problems raised by the dominant role of male voices in the production of the Bible, how does that fact affect how we deal with the evidence? How does it affect what the Bible says about women's authority. To answer in the negative, we might expect a very different picture if women were authors or even the subjects as often as men are in the Bible. But to answer also in the positive, it means that in those instances where women do act with authority in the Bible, we should take them extremely seriously because they have swum upstream, as it were. They have survived the many and constant forces of exclusion reduction, erasure, and have been embedded so deeply in tradition that they cannot be cut from the tradition. So with that in mind, I turned to the evidence in, in detail. But let me summarize the evidence and my understanding of it at this point, even though it's, um, it's something of a spoiler. Um, I wanted, but I wanted to be clear up front, even though it might rob some aha moment, um, especially if you, know, you haven't read the article, when it comes to Latter-day Saints and what Latter-day Saints understand as priesthood, we find clear evidence of women exercising the following roles. Apostle, prophet, deacon, teacher, judge, president, priest. Except for the last role, priest, this evidence has been known and described for Latter-day Saints at least since 1987, <laughs> and much longer in the history of scholarship on women in the Bible. What is even more interesting, oh, but I was going to say, but it's, it's, it's worth repeating, right? Apostle, prophet, deacon, teacher, judge, president, priest. And by, and by judge, I think we ha would have to include bishop. We'll talk about that later. What is even more interesting, though, is the question of why these roles never developed into permanent offices. Because by citing these examples spread over the whole Old and New Testaments, I don't mean to imply that there was originally a, a full-blown priesthood with, with orders that included women. Right? I'm not saying that if we go back far enough, we'll find that, aha, there are actually women everywhere. You know, 
Bibles full of women. But uh, so I'm not I'm not saying that. But some past biblical scholarship argued this that there was a recoverable original utopia in which women and men, you know, were were equal in the sort of pristine early days, the ideal days. Um, but I take cues from those scholars like Elizabeth Schussler Fiorenza who say that we can't try to construct this utopia on evidence that won't support it. Instead, our task is to use what evidence we have to chart the struggle over power across gender divides. This way, the evidence is also more directly relevant to the present. And there is ample evidence for it, that is, for the struggle. It is this struggle that the Lord hints at in Genesis 3.16, where the world Adam and Eve were about to populate is described as one in which pain, struggle, and female inequality would prevail. This is the, I will multiply your pains in childbirth, and, and you know, but your desire shall be to your husband, and he shall rule over you. That inequality is manifestly not the eternal will of God in that text. It is instead an explanation of the present temporal order. And the struggle for female authority and equality is one that is charted much more substantially in the Bible than the handful of women who held these roles that I just mentioned would suggest. Attention to the struggle, then, has enormous potential for thinking about the issues, especially in our tradition, because of the way it links up with themes already in our theology. And here was the aha moment for me. What scholars call the struggle for authority, we call, or we might call, apostasy. Let me explain what I mean. One of the apparent innovations of Joseph Smith's view of the restoration of priesthood authority was the inverse of what most reformers who thought um, that to get back to biblical authority, we had to strip away layers of residue that accrued with time. Right? So their idea is it's like, a, it's like, a, it's like a, an original painting. You know, initially it's bright, and, and there's layers of dirt and gunk and stuff like that that, that accrue, this kind of patina, and then you have to strip that away. But Joseph Smith's idea was the opposite. Um, and this is, Terrell Givens points this out um, in, in, his, um, in his recent book. He points out that for Joseph Smith, the notion of apostasy that necessitated a restoration was that things had been lost, not restoring like in a painting, but restoring like restoring something from incomplete to complete. So things had been lost, things had been removed, cut out, and needed to be replaced like temples and polygamy but mainly the authority of the priesthood. If the main thing that was lost was authority, and apostasy isn't something that only happens once but repeats in cycles, then I argue that the best way of understanding how it is possible that we have bright examples of women priesthood holders punctuating an otherwise, maybe one could say, bleak tableau of, um, of male-dominated institutions and a well-documented attempt to keep women out of those institutions alongside an apparent uh, male-only um, hierarchy, then I think the best way to explain these contradictions is to view the struggle as evidence of a cycle of apostasy whose legacy is still with us. If apostasy is the removal of priesthood authority, we see such um, apostasy operating on many levels and in virtually every dispensation. But we also see efforts at restoration, including during the time of Jesus. That's the way I frame the evidence. And um, in a few minutes when we have, we have discussion, I, I hope to hear your thoughts um, on, on these ideas. So now let me highlight a few of the instances, both of where we see women exercising what we would call priesthood authority and where we see efforts to remove it. 
I always like to start with Deborah, whom we meet in Judges 4 and 5, because she has few peers, male or female, in all of Scripture. And because her story comes at the beginning of the period of the Judges, which the Bible tells us is a period of cyclical apostasy and general decline as one moves from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, the book of Judges. The text is clear about Deborah. She is the judge, the prophet, and the leader of Israel. She held this as close to a formal office as one gets um, in, for, for that period. Um, I mean, judges were, I mean, the, the whole sort of structure of the book of Judges is one of these leaders to another, right? At this time, so-and-so was the judge. At this time, so-and-so was the judge. At this time, Deborah was the judge. She, she had a place under a certain tree where she would pronounce judgment. So she acted with her authority. She would pronounce judgment and she would issue prophecies. A tree that generations would remember for at least the next 500 years is the tree of Deborah, right? The oak of Deborah. I admit here um, that I, th- I think, I can't help but think of you know, King Benjamin's assembly, um, of his people to give instructions. Deborah maybe held her own kind of general conferences. She also summoned armies, and the Israelite general deferred to her on the matter of greatest importance, deferred to her, not just sort of said, what do you think? Said, what you tell me to do, I will do. Uh, Deferred to her on the matter of the greatest issue to Israelites at the time, which was the Canaanite threat. She thus has religious, political, and military authority concentrated in her hands. Even though we draw a strong line between modern bishops and judges in Israel, sorry, bishops and judges in Israel, I should say that, right? So we might see Deborah as, a, as something of a bishop too, especially in the, in, the, in the sort of etymological sense of bishop as overseer, right? Deborah was very much an overseer. But, but I, think she, I think she was much more than this. The only peers that she has in biblical or LDS tradition are Moses, Joseph Smith, and Brigham Young, maybe King Benjamin or one of the Almas. Maybe also if one squeezes the evidence, you can make a case for Saul or David too. And I'm not saying that she was necessarily the most, she necessarily had the most impact on Israel. I mean, David and and Solomon and, and those guys are pretty sort of important theologically and historically for biblical authors. But in terms of having religious and political authority uh, concentrated and military authority concentrated in your hands, um, she's almost without parallel. The text is clear on this, and it's difficult to minimize her. Mostly because it's difficult to minimize her, she just gets ignored. And because she's hard to fit within existing models of priesthood, especially uh, in our church. But not if one sees the bigger process of apostasy at work in Judges. The women that open the book of Judges have considerable power. The book of Judges features women in a way that no other biblical book does, maybe with the exception of Romans, um, the, the letter to the, to the Romans. Yael, who is at the beginning of the book in the same chapters as Deborah, she is um, her own kind of deliverer, killing the Canaanite general Sisera, and she was acting, as I will argue in a second, as a priest. But... As the, as the book progresses, the Israelites and the Israelites increasingly do what is right in their own eyes, the stories about women steadily show a decline as well. The first female, the first female heroes, sorry, sorry, first the female heroes lose their names uh, and then they lose their agency until we end the book 
with the Levite's nameless concubine in Genesis or in, in uh, Judges chapter 19, who is raped by Israelite men and her husband, probably when she's dead, but the text isn't clear on it, dismembers her body and sends out the pieces as a call to civil war. This isn't a text that usually gets read in Sunday school. <laughs> but it's important to say, I mean, it's, it's, one of, it's, it's the worst account in the Bible. I think it's the, the most horrific story. Well, I guess there are other contenders, but, um, but it's, it's really an awful story. And I think it's awful on purpose. I mean, I think the author of Judges intends to end the story of the Judges there, that there's such sort of depravity uh, in society. But anyway, so I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But so judges in this way, in this way, represents the status of women as a kind of cipher for the health of Israel as a whole, and it implies something has been lost from the beginning to the end. So it's not just about the examples of strong women like Deborah and Yael. It's the memory of a better time when women were deliverers and acted decisively with an authority that was lost by the end of the book. Deborah is not the only woman prophet. There are half a dozen others mentioned. Because she's not just named as a prophet, but she also acts as a prophet, is Hulda. Um, this is at, at the end of 2 Kings. She's prophet at the time of King Josiah. When the king's officials find a new text while renovating the temple, this is the book of Deuteronomy that they find, they take it to Hulda. Josiah says, we got to get prophetic authority, so prophetic authorization of this text, that this isn't a fake. And they take it to Hulda, the prophet, to verify its authenticity. And, and she says, it is the word of the Lord. This reminds, uh, this reminds me of how King Hezekiah, a generation or two earlier, consulted Isaiah on whether his preparations were sufficient for an Assyrian invasion. Other texts about female prophets, such as Miriam in Exodus or in um, Nehemiah, um, tell stories to criticize these prophets, so this is going the other way, uh, in a way that displays discomfort and a desire to support, subordinate female prophetic authority. Now to women as priests. I don't have time to go into all the evidence that portrays a few women in, in the Hebrew Bible acting as priests, but this is another area in which my article tries to bring in recent biblical scholarship to the discussion in a, in a way that's, I think, interesting and relevant. I mean, at least the evidence is interesting and relevant. I don't know what my treatment is. So I mentioned Yael earlier. She's a Kenite, um, which was a clan known for priesthood. She keeps a, a tent and execu uh, executes the Canaanite general Cicero when he enters her tent for sanctuary. The place she was set up seems to have been remembered as a special shrine by later generations, or at least sort of known for its... Um, its, uh, its, its uh, importance in worship systems. The evidence for her is circumstantial but indicative. We also have Zipporah, uh, Moses' wife, also from a famous priestly clan. This is Jethro slash Hobab slash Ruel's um, daughter. So she's also from a famous priestly clan and is portrayed as acting as a priest when in Exodus 4 uh, she intercedes as the Lord is about to kill Moses presumably because he is uncircumcised. She circumcises her son, an act reserved for priests. This is a really weird couple of, uh, couple of verses, mm -hmm. but it's, it's pretty striking. In, I mean, she is acting as, a, as, an, as an intermediary between Yahweh, between God, you know, Je Jehovah, mm -hmm. um, uh, and, uh, and her husband, you know, uh, Moses, the, 
So she, she, acts, she acts as a priest and, uh, and thereby saves her husband. Finally, there's Hannah. She is portrayed in the text as acting on her own in sacrificial matters, offering sacrifice on the fulfillment of the Lord's gift of a son to her. Even more telling is the clear evidence discussed even by uh, BYU professor Donald Perry that the male scribes transmitting this story, so this is long after the story is written, were uncomfortable with her acting on her own in sacrificing. So they rearranged verses to make her uh, act under the direction of her husband and even to question her, uh, her stability and her legitimacy within the temple. Her case highlights the potential unreliability of the Bible when it comes to women's authority because when it comes to portraying women as not having authority, I should say, because it demonstrates discomfort, the discomfort of those in charge of compiling the text with the, the discomfort with women as actors in priesthood settings. That, um, and if we fast forward to the second temple, we see that Hannah's ability to act in a temple setting has been entirely removed and women pushed to the outer courts. Authority has been revoked at some level. Staying with the Second Temple, moving to the New Testament, um, the New Testament evidence exhibits similar patterns. Women were among the preeminent disciples of Jesus and colleagues of Paul. Paul singles out several by name, Phoebe, a deacon, and of course Junia, who is called preeminent among the apostles. But in the New Testament, we also see the struggle, uh, the struggle for authority. Uh, that we've seen in the, in the Old Testament to this point. The Gospel of John hints at a different understanding of the disciples than, than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And, um, and he even, the Gospel of John even ranks Mary in front of Peter, while uh, the earlier Luke emphasized stories that limited women's roles. So there's kind of this subtle um, duel that's going on between Luke and John um, over the question and status of women. The what is most, let's see, what is most telling, I think, is the letters to Timothy. These are the most misogynistic verses in the Bible. And um, when I was growing up, every, I'm ashamed to say, every deacon, teacher, and priest knew where to find them, right? To quote at young women, mostly, but not entirely, in jest. <laughs> women learn in silence with full submission. Women not having authority to teach over a man. Uh, Women being saved through childbearing, right? They're all clustered right in Timothy, and all you have to do is remember Timothy and go there, and, and you could hurt the feelings of every young woman in your congregation. These are not the words of Paul. Scholars agree that these letters were forged in the name of Paul, probably in the second century, and there is overwhelming evidence. This isn't just some supposition because we're uncomfortable. This is because it contradicts what Paul says directly in other... I mean, Paul expects women to prophesy in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11. He expects women to prophesy, but not, but not Timothy. And, 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 I mean, there's stylistic differences, and Timothy is using terms that indicate a much more developed Christianity. So, so scholars um, agree that these letters were forged in the name of Paul probably in the second century in order to try to curtail the growth of women's activity and power in Christian communities and to fix the emerging offices of bishop as male-only offices. Going through this, the process of researching this article and writing about it, I mean, I, I've always... I think I carry the shame of having quoted these verses when I was a teenager, and and I, I always sort of hated these verses in Timothy. 
um, and just thought, well, you know, when it comes to this article, all we all we got to say is all that there is to say about these verses is that they're they're not Paul and they're they're misogynistic, but they tell a more subtle story, right? They tell a story of an active attempt to to um, to argue against something that was going on, right? That that is in in the period we have other evidence that shows that women were actually enjoying greater power than they ever had in these communities, and the author of Timothy of Timothy first thing of Timothy and Titus didn't like it at all and wasn't having any of it, and so forges this, these letters in the name of Paul to get his agenda across, and um, he was successful, or at least at least mostly. So so here too, the struggle for female authority is apparent, and it would be voices the voices like we hear in Timothy that would win the day during what Mormons come to know as the Great Apostasy, when priesthood was removed, indeed. So my paper emphasizes three intertwined issues. First, the positive evidence for women acting in roles Latter-day Saints understand as priesthood. Second, the emphasis on their action, right, their activity as agents who wield priesthood. And third, the evidence of a struggle of women to act uh, in these roles and the efforts of men and institutions to curtail their agency. So I need to pause here to note something important that I didn't have time to fully develop in the paper, uh, and of course I don't really have time to fully develop it here either, but it's crucial to flag right here, and that is the relevance of Heavenly Mother. I'll just say flatly that I think it's difficult to imagine women as priesthood actors as long as the goddess we believe in has an undefined agency. We don't know, we don't have a vision of of what she does. And the the recent church um, gospel topics essay on this, the the last two gospel topics essays were on women women in the priesthood in Joseph Smith's time. Note that there's nothing about the Bible in that essay, which at first made me mad, and then I thought, maybe that's a good thing. And uh, it's a good thing because, you know, I would have probably had a lot of problems with... um, if they, tr- if they you know, tried to dismiss the biblical evidence. But that article on, on Mother in Heaven says what we've known all along, and that is that we don't know very much uh, at all. Um, and it just kind of owns it. I actually, I actually really like it for, for that reason. It just, it just sort of gives the state of the question, which is we don't, we don't know much. The best thing ever written on this, at least... Um, at least maybe until Taylor Petrie's article comes out uh, in, in a couple of months in the Harvard Theological Review, is that of Melody Munch Charles um, on the need for a new Mormon heaven. This was, I believe this was dialogue. Um, the need for a new Mormon heaven. It is, it is not kind and it doesn't pull any punches, but it, it is extremely incisive. Where she lays out the problems with Heavenly Mother as a silent, invisible Heavenly Partner. So I had to save the bulk of the material that I had on this for a later article, uh, but I will say um, that the Bible can help here too when it comes to Heavenly Mother. Genesis 1, for example, hints at women active in the creative process, right? When, when God says, let us make humans in our image, our image, right? And he made them male and female. So, um, so for a long time, interpreters have said, well, that has to include women. If you're going to make male and female images, there have to be male and female creators. And uh, we also have uh, Proverbs 8, which makes the involvement of a female entity as the one who does the work of creation explicit. 
it may be the case that we need to restore female prophets so that they can reveal Heavenly Mother to the rest of us. In any case, there is a fairly strong connection between the agency of a Heavenly Mother, I think, and the ability of her daughters to act with power. One more point related to the Heavenly First family. When comparing the struggle for female ordination in non-LDS communities, it must be said that we have a much bigger problem with priesthood and gender than other Christian communities do. This is because priesthood is entwined with every single relationship. It permeates every family in the here and the hereafter in a very direct way. We can't, as did some biblical scholars that I talk about in the article, we can't dismiss priesthood that you know the priesthood because it was basically exclusive of all females in the Bible as well as the vast majority of males in the Bible. So, you know, if you were a rank and file Israelite in, you know, in the time of the Old Testament, you were excluded from the priesthood too unless you were of this very thin line, right, a, a sort of hereditary line. So Carol Myers, a, a, one of the preeminent biblical scholars, the president of the Society of Biblical Literature, she has this great book called Rediscovering Eve, which I'd recommend to all of you. Um, the first book was called Discovering Eve, and then she updated it in 2012 called Rediscovering Eve. She says, she just says, she doesn't take the, all the Levitical stuff as relevant to a discussion of gender, or very relevant to a discussion of what life was really like for women on the ground in, um, in ancient Israel, because most men were excluded from the priesthood also. But we can't say that in our tradition, right? Because we see priesthood as going into, and helpfully and happily, for the most part, going into, into every family. So priesthood is so entwined with eternal gender in LDS theology that getting, is right, getting it right is cosmically crucial. When it comes to priesthood and gender, the stakes are much, much higher in the Mormon context. So how do we make sense of these tentative starts, these relatively brief examples in the face of uh, much broader institutional ones that seem to cut in the opposite direction? One option is what the second century church fathers did, and that was to declare them aberrations, right? Deviations um, from the will of the Lord. But to do that seems to do damage to the biblical evidence, or at least to go far beyond what the biblical evidence suggests. Do we really want to call Deborah, about whom the Israelites sang songs to commemorate her as a deliverer, and one of the great, if not the greatest of the judges, do we want to call her a deviation from the truth, a mistake, an exception? Do we say that Josiah didn't consult the prophet Huldah in the same manner that Hezekiah consulted Isaiah a generation earlier, or that Paul didn't allow women apostles and deacons, even though the text says so plainly. So we need another solution. And I believe the best way for Latter-day Saints to make sense of all of the data is through something that has been with us since Joseph Smith, through the notion that in all generations the forces of apostasy chip away at the channel, channels of authority that then have to be restored. I never thought when I set out to do this, to just talk about, I was just going to talk about Deborah and Yael and, and um, all the examples. In fact, I actually invited some, um, some collaboration with, you know, I asked a couple of New Testament people because my, my specific training is in, is in Old Testament and I thought it would be easier than reading all the New Testament stuff myself just to co-author an article. And my friends turned me down because they, um, they were like, yeah, it's, it's sort of 
been picked over. It's sort of been, been done before. So I thought I was just going to be kind of um, regurgitating what what earlier generations or earlier you know, scholars had previously said. But I, I never thought we could talk about women holding priesthood as an act of restoration. That, you know, I, I thought that we would, you know, we'd talk about these examples and sort of use that as a, as a way of sort of creatively thinking about new ways of, um, of women and authority. But it's an act of restoration. I, LDS women don't have um, their Elijah Abels, right? The, the, the example of somebody who was ordained, right? A, a, an African-American who was ordained uh, clearly in Joseph Smith's time that we can point to and say, well, it clearly, you know, Joseph Smith was okay with it and we can, we can make sense of this in a different way than if there weren't an Elijah Abel. But and we, we, we don't really have that in Joseph Smith's time uh, for women in, from early church history to, to set a clear precedent, um, as the recent Gospel Topics essay pointed out. But they do in the Bible. The Bible... Um, which is curiously absent from the recent Gospel Topics essay. So, but I'm convinced that this, it's the best way for us to make sense of this data. Right? We have this data, it, it doesn't fully agree, and I think this concept of apostasy is the best thing we, we have to try to, uh, to try to explain what's going on in the Bible. So the Bible has a way of pushing back, a way of pushing back against all kinds of trends, even and perhaps especially against the very dogmatism that takes the Bible as its foundation. It was famously and regularly invoked to support American slavery, the Bible was. It was also instrumental in its abolition. It forces universities to justify its inclusion in curriculums in the face of relativistic pressures of postmodernism. If the Bible is just a book like any other, why do we devote whole courses to it? And as, as I and others have tried to chronicle, it also troubles the sense we get elsewhere in its pages that power and authority re- reside only with male actors. So I look forward to hearing your thoughts, concerns, challenges, heckling, <laughs> um, and I really look forward to continued uh, conversation. Thanks. Well, thank you, Corey. That was uh, very enlightening. And uh, I'm going to, uh, Don's asked me to conduct just this last part. I'm going to t- go ahead and open it up for questioning, and Corey, you just go ahead and, and handle that. I would like to say one other thing, however. Corey's article is an excellent one, which uh, everyone ought to read, and it is in Dialogue, and indeed, if you're not a subscriber to Dialogue, you should be. It's not very expensive if you subscribe to the online version particularly, and it's very simple to get. Corey's article is in the summer of 2015 issue, that's a premium article, so if you don't subscribe, you probably have to pay a couple of bucks to get it, but it's still it's, it's a very inexpensive download. So now I'll give it back to Corey. I'm sure you're aware it's implicit in what you said, but I think it would be helpful to make it explicit that uh, the uh, concept of restoration of something that was lost is the language now used by African-American Latter-day Saints to talk about what happened in 1978. They often speak of it as restoring the the priesthood to um, 
black Americans or black African Americans or uh, black people generally, of course. So uh, I think that's a kind of an interesting precedent that you might emphasize a little more in your in your talk because that's clearly a case, isn't it, where where we now have to admit because of you because Elijah Abel is there and several others, we have to yeah. admit. And so it makes sense to talk about now, this now as a restoration. So if we get that point with, uh, with the uh, power of women, uh, it'll be, a, a, I think, an equally powerful argument. Yeah, thank, thank you uh, for that comment. I'm glad you made it because it's, when I was writing, that was another thing I didn't address here, but I start with this in, in, in the article that the, the, the parallels between sort of broader social forces and, um, and uh, sort of developments, I guess, and, the, and, and priesthood developments are, are, are super interesting. And when, when in the new, the updated headings to, um, to Official Declaration 2, they cite, they cite Nephi, right, as, as saying, saying that, uh, you know, that this is sort of evidence of the fulfillment of, you know, um, black and white, bonded free, male and female. And they say male and female too. Um, and and yeah, so the language of restoration. Even though, so I went back and and started and, and read a couple of the um, the immediate reactions by like by Elder McConkie uh, after 1978, and at, he wasn't using that language yet. Um, he was saying, you know, this is, this is revelation. This is, you know, forget everything that I s- said before. But as, I mean, but I wonder if it would have been sort of as possible to, to have 1978 without Lester Bush in 1973, right? And so, yeah, I think, uh, I, th- I think the, the parallels are, are really strong. And, if, and the fact that we do have these women in the Bible with names, and not just with names, with being described as doing stuff, right? They're just sort of not casually mentioned, and we don't really know what they what they are or what they do. You know, they're they're not they're not as numerous as the as the as the male actors, but they they're there, and um, and so I think I think we at least need to, like we do with Elijah Abel's, we need to 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 make sense of them. Sorry, I, I kind of excitedly cut you off. Did you? Did you want to say something else? Or? No. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, did you look at any of the apocryphal works in, in this context? Not, I mean, I'm aware of them, but I didn't want to get into them because I wanted to speak more directly to um, to works or, or about works that are canonical for, for Latter-day Saints. But there is, there's a ton of interesting stuff when it comes to, to gender um, and power in um, in apocrypha, um, but it's a long way of saying no. I didn't. <laughs> I mean, I've read a couple of the books and I've never really noticed it. But it's been years ago. So I, um, the Book of Enoch and the Book of Jasher are interesting to me. Other 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 apocryphal works I've not read, but I just wonder, in as much as you're looking for examples of authority, female authority, that. Uh, there may be some. I don't know that. And we know that the apocryphal works do not contain all truth. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, but they but they do shed light on this um, on, on periods that aren't covered by you know by uh, Old Testament, New Testament, and and there are some stories I heard Judith mentioned um, 
So Judith and Susanna and the elders and, and um, stories that, um, I, again, I, I don't think, well, for my purposes, they weren't directly relevant, but they're certainly interesting and, and worth reading. Yeah. What about this idea where the woman answers to the man, the man to Jesus, and Jesus to God, that Paul talks about in Corinthians? And I don't know if I always understand Paul. So I don't understand if he's saying this is good and right or this is not good and right. I can't ever understand. So I'm wondering, is that traditional Jewish tradition that he's speaking to that goes that is common to New Testament times, or does that go far back? And how does that fit? That's an excellent question, and I'll say that... Um, that you're not alone in being confused by Paul, because because Paul seems to have different models of things that he that he uses um, simultaneously sometimes. Um, so so his his sort of model of of, of salvation and justification, uh, scholars are still sort of puzzling over that one. But um, when it comes to gender, the most helpful thing that I've ever seen on Paul, and and I and I treat it in some detail in the article, and that is. Um, work by a guy named Daniel Boyarin, uh, who is a historian of, uh, of early Judaism and Christianity and gender. And he says that the way that we should understand Paul on this, and especially the, the verses that you're talking about where there's, there's a clear hierarchy that Paul, that Paul describes, um, but it's not as, I should say, it's not as nearly as severe as, as Timothy. Um, but that, that hierarchy is one model of two that Paul uses. So Paul in other places says there is no Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female in the Lord. And that seems to be at odds with um, this other um, interpreters are reading God created. um, God will not have gender identities in the Lord. And um, I think that Helps to make sense of, of some of his writings at the time, at the time of um, of Paul. Thank you. Um, this is Morris Thurston again. You can download Corey Crawford's outstanding article titled "The Struggle for Female Authority in Biblical and Mormon Traditions." from our website at dialoguejournal.com. And with that, I'll ask our outstanding web editor, Emily Jensen, to cue the music. Thank you for listening to the Dialogue Podcasts in honor of our 50th anniversary jubilee. If you enjoy listening, please consider becoming a subscriber to Dialogue by visiting dialoguejournal.com or supporting us with a donation. Thank you. Thank you.